Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Neural Compass podcast. Firstly, I'm happy to announce that my website has acquired a domain, and you can now find me at neuralcompass.org. That is N-E-U-R-A-L-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot org. As always, my name is Stephen Sinecrope. I'm a neuroscience student from the University of Chicago, and anything I say here is not to be considered medical advice, but meant to educate and just maybe entertain you. This episode is on COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, COVID, Rona, the list goes on. The name of the virus is one thing nobody can seem to agree on. To shine a bit of light, the term coronavirus is actually an umbrella term covering a whole subset of viruses with close, with close genetic and structural relations. SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV are both examples of coronaviruses, and if you aren't familiar with those, they were viral outbreaks in 2003 and 2012, respectively. The word corona is Latin, meaning crown, and also relates to the solar corona, which is a lion's mane of light, making up our sun's outermost atmosphere. These both correspond with the shape of the COVID-19 virus, best described as spherical with spikes. The term I will be using in this podcast is COVID-19, which is actually an acronym. CO is short for corona, VI is short for virus, and the D is short for disease. And the 19 is short for 2019, when the outbreak started. So overall, the term COVID-19 means coronavirus disease 2019. I'm breaking up this episode into two thematic halves. The first will be taking a closer look into the neuroscience of COVID-19, working hand-in-hand -hand with fundamental cellular biology. And the second will be reaching out wide to envelop the psychological and social aspects and hardships of COVID-19, and what you can do to stay resilient and emerge healthy and happy from this whole quarantined mess. To begin wading into the neuroscience of COVID-19, most of you are probably wondering how neuroscience is even involved in the COVID-19 pandemic. I thought it was a purely respiratory virus. To understand this, you'll have to know a little bit more about the virus itself. The main target of the COVID-19 COVID is a cell surface protein known as ACE2 or ACE2, which stands for angiotensin converting enzyme 2. It's not relevant to know many more details about this enzyme, except that it produces small proteins and is targeted by the hooks, barbs, or spikes of the COVID-19 virus. This means that any cell types in the body that have these ACE2 or ACE2 proteins could be vulnerable to attack. Now, where in the body are these ACE2 proteins present? Unsurprisingly, one of the highest concentration of these proteins are in the lungs. They are also present in the heart, liver, nose and mouth, etc. And relevant to this podcast, the brain. The brain does have an advantage, however, the blood-brain barrier, which is basically a selective membrane that filters what's going into the brain's blood supply and what's not. This barrier helps to protect, but does not make the brain immune to invasion. There is a wealth of research coming from around the world giving valuable insights as to the sequencing of this virus and how it affects the human body. Authors Ling Mao and JAMA Neurology and Krishna Nalival 
in brain behavior and immunity report that respectively 36.4 and 22.5% of COVID-19 patients experience neurological symptoms. This is ranging from inflammation of the brain to dizziness and nausea to anosmia and agusia, which is the loss of smell and taste, all the way to acute hypoxic damage resulting from insufficient oxygen and in some cases stroke. The question becomes, how is COVID-19 traditionally thought of as purely respiratory causing these neurological symptoms? And the answer isn't so simple. While it is possible and there is evidence that in some cases COVID-19 can penetrate the blood-brain barrier and affect the CNS, central nervous system, an autopsy study in the New England, New England Journal of Medicine found that present in every single case of the 18 autopsies performed was acute hypoxic damage to brain regions. And these brain regions did not always even have virus in that region. So while it seems in severe cases of more systematic infection, brain regions can become damaged, more lethal for these patients and more worrisome for patients with less severity of illness is what I would call the indirect effects of COVID-19 on the brain. I keep mentioning the word hypoxic. What does it mean? Hypoxic simply means lacking oxygen, and this is caused by COVID-19 in more interesting ways. As I've said, the virus targets ACE2 proteins in the lungs, the heart, and in hemoglobin in the bloodstream. COVID-19 causes severe inflammation and damage to the lungs, limiting oxygen intake and carbon dioxide exhalation. This reduces the oxygen able to be transported to bodily tissues through the bloodstream. Damage and inflammation in the heart reduces the ability for blood and oxygen to diffuse. And the proverbial doomsday cherry on top is that COVID-19 attacks hemoglobin in the bloodstream. The interaction itself is somewhat complicated, but put simply, it makes the blood sticky, promoting clots and buildup. These clots, if they make their way to the brain, can cause strokes, which is a dangerous oxygen deprivation of brain areas, which in the case of COVID-19 has hit some by surprise. Some otherwise healthier, younger patients have been experiencing strokes. If you think you may be exposed to COVID-19, it can do nothing but create some peace of mind to become familiar with some of the early warning signs of stroke, which can be treated with high efficacy if caught early. Facial drooping and weakness on one side of the body are two key ones to know. COVID-19 also indirectly attacks the brain and nervous system in another way, through your own immune defenses. The immune system is a fantastic defense mechanism at the human body's disposal, but when faced with strong invasion, it has to sometimes take dire measures in combating it. The immune system produces a powerful, non-specific killing force that can fight the virus, but also kills healthy cells in the process. These waves of destruction are called cytokine storms, which can damage tissue and in some cases even nervous tissue, and in rare cases cause permanent damage, as shown in Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is immune damage of the nervous system at a chronic scale. All of what I've said is very frightening, so I want to level with you here and say that most COVID-19 patients will not experience the extremes of these systems and very few will have any chronic 
neurological effects. A very common worry and prevalent symptom of COVID-19 is anosmia and or agusia, which is the loss of smell and or taste. A recent study by Harvard Medical School has actually released some reassuring research that these symptoms are being caused by damage to accessory cells and tissues and not the neurons communicating these senses to the brain. Now you may not understand why that's good news, but this is great news because it suggests that these symptoms are not chronic and these cells can recover, whereas the neurons would have a much more difficult time doing so. I hope I can continue to imbue some more resolve and hope in you diving into some of the more social and psychological aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The most helpful mindset to have is the cliche that we are all in this together. I know how awful that can be to hear, but even physically apart, our minds can be unified and work together for a vaccine to enable education to continue, to provide mental health resources, to protect possible victims of domestic abuse. I've said it in episode two, but loneliness is not a requirement of the COVID-19 pandemic. I've now told you all about COVID-19 and its effect on the body, but what can you do about it? Obviously, the best way to combat COVID-19 is to never contract it, prevention. I recommend following all of your local governmental official laws and all of the CDC recommendations for masks and social distancing. I know masks have become somewhat of a heated political topic, so I'm going to be as objective as possible. Cloth masks don't grant you all that much protection, but what they do do is protect others from you. If you are traveling through airports or other high-risk areas, the addition of a face shield will grant you much more protection for yourself. And if you think you don't need to wear a mask because you'll know if you get sick, you are completely and unequivocally wrong. You could be what's called an asymptomatic carrier and spread the virus before it has replicated enough inside you to create any visible or felt symptoms. Hong Jun Zhao recently published a paper in Epidemiology and Infection talking all about how the infectivity of asymptomatic carriers is being greatly underrated in both our media and statistical measures. Now prevention is nice and all, but what do you do if you get sick? This question has no right or easy answer. It's probably best to start by identifying your susceptibility and severity of infection. The CDC has more specific guidelines on risk groups but a rule of thumb is that you have, if you have any pre-existing conditions of the immune system, lungs, or heart, you need to be more careful. If you are in a low-risk category and your symptoms seem manageable once contracting the illness, it is recommended to just quarantine in your home. CDC.gov says to seek emergency medical services in this category only if you're experiencing trouble breathing, persistent pain or pressure in the chest, confusion, inability to stay awake, or bluish lips or face. COVID-19 has tested all of us in some way or another. We haven't always made the correct choices, and we won't always make the correct choices as individuals or nations. But we should all take pride in the efforts we have put forward. On a global scale, our social measures exceeded all statistical models in controlling the virus's spread. Now we have to continue to do so, but be proud that your efforts, 
your efforts made a positive difference. I'd like to now end with a wonderfully fitting poem from part four from East Coker and the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is a disease if we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind us of our and Adam's curse, and that, to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein, if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in mental wires. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. I love the way this poem highlights the oppositions of healing. A surgeon's tools are scalpels, drills, and staples, letting blood to heal. I also love the veiled hope and darker sounding lines and the irony and truth existing simultaneously in the final line. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. Thank you so much for listening to the very end of this special fourth episode of the Neural Compass podcast. I covered a wide swath of material, but that's part of the beauty of science and medicine. You can't discuss neuroscience without delving into biology and chemistry and whatnot. You can find me at Neural Compass Podcast on Instagram and Neural underscore Compass on Twitter. And as I mentioned in the introduction, my website has upgraded to neuralcompass.org. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay happy and healthy. <laughs>